0: Yankee Stadium, the house that Ruth built, was a palace dedicated by the Sultan of Swat. But the pigskin cavalcade keeps its gloomy ghost away during the football season. The crowds arrive early by subway bus and car. The Yankees, who had toppled the 49ers the previous week and who were hopeful of a playoff spot, tried hard but without success to stop the Browns. Otto Graham had one of his great afternoons, hitting the ends and halfbacks with passes with clock-like regularity. Auto passed to ends Lavelle and Speedy, and then switched to Bax Jones and Bodeker and had the Yanks pretty confused. To add to the balanced attack of the Browns, Marion Motley had quite an afternoon busting through the tremendous Yankee line. Bill Bodeker completed the route of the New York club with a catch and fancy fake that enabled him to leap into the end zone with the final touchdown of the game. Lou Groza with a field goal and four conversions aided in the one-sided score. The crowd was shocked as they read the bad news, which saw the Browns trample the Yankees 31 to nothing. The Browns are off again on their way to Cleveland, awaiting another season of the greatest show in football. And with the challenge of a new and greater league, the Browns have started preparing for the new season, which will find the four-time champions battling the Philadelphia Eagles, the New York Giants, the Green Bay Packers, the Chicago Bears, the Los Angeles Rams, and all of the other great 11s. ...who have shown time and time again that the Autumn cavalcade of sports is both colorful and exciting.
1: Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon... Hey, everybody, how are you? It's Tim Hanlon, and it's good seat still available. Our curious little podcast journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. I thank you tremendously for finding us uh, in the wilds of podcast land and uh, downloading us and putting us into your earbuds. Uh, we appreciate it uh, tremendously. And uh, hopefully we reward you uh, this week with some uh, some fun and frivolity from the world of the All-America Football Conference. Yes, the league that was. Uh, The major butt kicker challenger to the NFL in the uh, late 1940s, uh, especially as the uh, the war years had uh, wound down in this country. And pro football was, uh, albeit not yet, uh, sort of the supreme professional sport as it is become today. It was not quite there yet. Uh, The college game was really much more the thing. uh, And certainly baseball was probably uh, the most uh, predominant and uh, most followed uh, professional sport uh, at that time, but uh, clearly after the war had been uh, completed, there was no doubt that there were a lot of people who were uh, looking at football as perhaps the next uh, big thing, the growth uh, opportunity uh, in the realm of professional sports. And and clearly uh, the uh, millionaires coffee clutch of, uh, of ownership uh, that uh, created the All-America Football Conference certainly had dollar signs in their eyes uh, and a, a massive opportunity. Uh, in their minds ahead of them. But as we'll hear in our conversation this week with our guest, Gary Webster, the path to riches, shall we say, uh, and success by challenging the North, uh, North, uh, the NFL, the National Football League, uh, was not a clear and direct one, uh, despite the money and the will of this collective uh, challenger group. Gary's uh, new book is called The League That Didn't Exist, which is an interesting title, the uh, a History of the All-America Football Conference. And That title is not uh, by chance, because uh, as we've dealt with the decades uh, since uh, this period of time, uh, it's really interesting to see sort of how the NFL has uh, almost brushed away these four or five years of challengers during uh, the formative uh, years, very formative years of what has uh, become now the NFL. And uh, to deny the fact that the Cleveland Browns, as you heard in that little clip there, uh, as they were getting ready to uh, go into the NFL in 1950, But also, of course, the uh, Baltimore Colts, uh, at least the legacy of such and the name and whatnot. And of course, certainly the uh, San Francisco 49ers, none of those teams. And by the way, the Buffalo Bills as well, albeit not uh, direct lineage, but uh, certainly uh, the establishment of the viability of professional football in Buffalo was the AAFC's doing. And and all of those teams and and frankly, a lot more is really due to the uh, All-America Football Conferences existence and, frankly, pushing of the NFL competitively into uh, what uh, it is now become. And, and, and you know, we're going to get into some of the reasons why maybe the NFL doesn't sort of uh, acknowledge the AFC's existence or doesn't want to uh, formally do so, especially as uh, one of the anniversaries of uh, of the old league is, is coming up. It does remain a mystery. We'll get into some of the issues. But regardless of that, the history of the All-America Football Conference is a fascinating one. Full of uh, intrigue, full of uh, egos and vision, and and the football one wasn't all that bad either. Although, depending on where you were, if you were in Miami or you were playing uh, the the you know the Brooklyn Dodgers football uh, version, you know there were some moments of uh, of woefulness for sure. But as you'll hear in our conversation coming up, amazing crowds, some tremendous football. Uh, the Cleveland Browns prime among them, but uh, but not the only in terms of quality. And uh, some very interesting, you know, evolution of the uh, the sport of pro football because of the All-America Football Conference's existence. And we're going to get into all of that and much, much more with our guest, Gary Webster, coming up in just a couple of seconds. And uh, we uh, hopefully will uh, give you some enjoyment uh, for the next hour or so in that conversation. So please stay tuned to that. But before we get to that, uh, that chat, I do want to remind you that one of our great sponsors, of course, is and are our friends at OldSchoolShirts.com. Where you can, of course, use the promo code good seats, and you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases at that tremendous website. And of course, it's uh, especially prudent uh, to do so because uh, there's some great stuff there that features the AAFC, uh, uh, timely for this conversation. In particular, you're going to find uh, two great shirts devoted to the two Chicago teams that played in the AAFC, uh, one of those being uh, the Chicago Hornets. A great sort of gray and black shirt there. That was the uh, the latter version of the Chicago franchise uh, establishment in the AAFC, and it's a really cool logo. It's uh it's yellow and black and white, and uh, it's just very cool. And I think you're going to enjoy that. Simply at least for the the logo, let alone for the the team and the memories you might have had of that. And of course, there's also the shirt of the team uh, that preceded uh, the Chicago. Hornets and uh, in the AFC, and that was called the Chicago Rockets, also a very cool and interesting uh, uh, logo for sure. And that's uh, more red and blue and white. Uh, you're going to find both of those shirts and many, many more uh, across all kinds of sports, not just football. And frankly, all kinds of other pop culture uh, treasures, too, from lots of different cities all across this country. Uh, and again, that's at OldSchoolShirts.com. And make sure, of course, that you use the promo code Good Seats. And make sure that you, of course, get 10% off all of your purchases. And, of course, by doing so, you're going to give us a few shekels of love. Uh, and why not, right? Because it's your favorite podcast of all time. And uh, you want to see the show continue as we do by giving a few shekels accordingly after making a purchase there. That uh, is certainly much obliged. And uh, we and OldSchoolShirts.com appreciate it very much. And we also, of course, appreciate you continue to listen uh for the rest of the show with our great conversation with our friend gary webster as we get into some of the intricacies of the all america football conference of the late 1940s and here's our chat please enjoy i take it that that your your interest in the afc is born from uh the cleveland browns uh being an ohio guy but that's an assumption
2: well, that's absolutely uh, correct. In fact, uh, well, I, I've been interested in the AAFC because I am a Browns fan. But then when I was researching my book about the 1948 undefeated AAFC champion Browns, I really became interested in the AAFC. And knowing that even to this day, the uh, NFL pretty much dismisses the existence of the AAFC, I, and I looked around to see if anybody had written about it in any detail. I found a, a couple of books of um, statistics and such, but no real detail about the four-year existence of the AAFC, and having all of that information that I had already compiled in writing about the Browns, I was just able to expand upon that. And uh, McFarland was interested in uh, publishing the history. So that is uh, where the book came from.
1: So, I mean, why do you think, so let's maybe start with the title, right? So uh, the league that didn't exist, right? So give us a sense of sort of the premise, uh, because it's, it's very clear uh, that the NFL, and we've learned this in lots of other conversations, right, is not necessarily... Uh, warm and fuzzy. And by the way, a lot of leagues I, we've sort of seen is that they've had a sort of, um, shall we say, very uh, a variable approach to embracing or not conveniently uh, history uh, when it's uh, suitable, uh, depending on where things are going and the big business that pro sports and the NFL is right now. So give give us a sense of sort of that premise, given the fact that actually a couple of teams from the old AFC actually live on today
2: in the NFL. Yes, yes, they do in the uh, the Browns and the San Francisco Forty ers Well, the interesting thing that I discovered, uh, one of many interesting things that I discovered in in researching this book, was I refer to it as the uh, naivete because I don't think it was stupidity. I really don't. The men who bankrolled the AAFC were smart businessmen. They acquired gobs of money to be able to um, invest in professional football, which was highly speculative in the, the late 1940s. But in doing the research, I discovered that these men couldn't understand why the NFL did not Embrace them from the very beginning. Once Arch Ward, the sports columnist for the Chicago Tribune, whose brainchild was the All America Football Conference, once Ward put this thing together, before uh, many players had even been signed, uh, a two man committee consisting of Paul Brown, the head coach of the Cleveland Browns, and John Keeshan, the owner of the Chicago Rockets, were assigned by the AAFC owners to go to Elmer Layden, the commissioner of the NFL, and say, look, Elmer, let's sit down and talk about how our two leagues can coexist peacefully and uh, in, in prosperity. Well, Elmer Layden was not at all interested in that. From that came the uh, rather famous quote attributed to Layden by so many uh, football history books when first informed about the AAFC saying, let them get a football. And that quote has been um, changed down through the years. And the actual thing that Layden said was that hey, they, they don't have any players. They have not played a game. There's really nothing for us to talk about. As far as we're concerned, the AAFC doesn't exist. Let them get a football. Let them play some games. And then we can talk about potential coexistence. But, Tim, you know as well as I do that any a sports league has come along to challenge the status quo, whether it's uh, a league to challenge Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NFL, the NHL. Owners of the established league don't throw open their arms and say, hey, there's room for everybody. Come on in and let's have a great big party. It doesn't work that way, and AAFC owners could not understand that. They could not understand why the NFL was not welcoming them with open arms, but instead looked at them as the enemy. And that, to me, is just reeking of, uh, of naivete. I, I can't understand why these men didn't realize the NFL is not going to embrace the AAFC. They're going to try to crush it, because that is what existing sports leagues do to upstarts. That was one of the most fascinating things I learned in researching this book.
1: But Leighton's response, right, is uh, is probably also, though, hardened by uh, what the NFL uh, went through during the war years. Right. We've we've talked a couple of of episodes on on, you know, sharing teams like the card pit and the the Stegals And, you know, and it's also very interesting, too, or then maybe counterintuitive that that he would respond that way, given the relatively uh, strong uh, financial backing of these uh, new folks, given that the league itself was uh you know, pretty much almost a, a done deal from a, a hearty band of men, right? That that were probably more uh, full of will and ingenuity than they were uh, money, right?
2: Well, uh, yes, I I think that's that's true. Now, one thing that it may be worth noting. At this point, and it gets back to the point that you made about what happened during the war years, there was talk of the NFL having to shut down entirely, possibly for, uh, for 1945, because there just may not have been enough healthy bodies to field 10 teams. And you did have teams uh, merging. The, uh, the, the Boston Yanks um, merged with, um, with uh, another team during the 1945 season. There were, as you mentioned, the Steagles and, and Card Pitt, and the Cleveland Rams simply ceased operations for the 1943 season. They just didn't feel they could uh, put a competitive team on the field. There weren't enough available players, and they ceased operations. So, yes, these NFL owners had gone through very tough times during World War II, as did all sports, as did all Americans, period, and I, I do think uh, Layden's response probably was not the vitriolic response that sports writers down through the years have made it out to be. You can certainly understand his feeling that all they've got right now is a bunch of guys with money and uh, and franchises that have not signed any players. And I mentioned something In this book, which is something else I came across in the research that I would not been aware of previously, there were two other upstart leagues that tried to challenge the NFL in 1944. Neither of them got as far as so much as signing a player. There was a league called the United States Football League, which existed on paper for about six months before throwing in the towel. Then there was another league called the Trans America Football League, which existed on paper for about the same amount of time. In fact, they both threw in the towel on the same day, uh, June 2nd of 1945. They both quit on the same day. So Elmer Layden had really very little reason to believe that the All America Football Conference was going to amount to anything more than the USFL had, or that the Trans America Football League had. And I think his dismissive response to questions about it is probably um, quite quite understandable, and and not really the dismissive, vitriolic, uh, lack of respect response that sports writers have made it out to be in in the years that followed.
1: Yeah, so that, that's interesting. So the skepticism then, obviously, it seems well born then, uh, but it's also interesting too that uh, you know again, I put this in perspective, right? We're we're not even. You know, in 1945, it's still it was still relatively in, in turgid times in this country, certainly domestically. And oh, yeah. Right. And, and I think it becomes interesting, though, because by the skepticism, you can understand that. But then it's also interesting, though, that there's got to be a, a form of, uh, I don't know, flattery or or intrigue, at least in the NFL offices, that I mean, to your point, these two other organizations and now this third one and now with, with this third one with a significant amount of money behind it. I, you got to think the NFL brain trust is thinking, wow, there there are a lot of people out there uh, kind of circling around what we what we have. And it's ironic, given what we've been through the last couple of years, uh, that so many people want to kind of step up. And, and so so maybe we do have something here of substance. And then we we had a double down, given that the war hopefully is over relatively soon and, and maybe more robust economic times are ahead.
2: Well, I, something that I said at the very beginning of the book is imitation is the sincerest form of flattery unless you run a professional sports league, in which case, of course, you don't want imitators because you don't want competition. But yes, I can see that point in that they must be figuring if we've got these imitators coming out of the woodwork, we must have something really good here. Because at that time in the, the middle 1940s, professional football, still very much a second-tier attraction. We are, uh, in 1945, we're 13 years away from the uh, epic Giants versus Colts championship game that all football historians look upon as the game that put the NFL on the map and led to the huge explosion in popularity that continues unabated to this day. The NFL was definitely behind college football in popularity certainly behind major league baseball in popularity based on the amount of uh, ink in the newspapers that i researched for this book it was well behind uh, boxing in popularity so it was uh, a definite second tier attraction but they had to be thinking as you said we may be onto something here because look at all these people with money to spend who are trying to challenge us. But the NFL was really pretty much fighting for its own survival in 1945 until the war ended. The players returned from Europe and from the South Pacific, and they were able to field 10 teams in 1945 and look ahead to, uh, to greener pastures and better days come 1946 and beyond.
1: All right. So, who are these? Who are these guys in this uh, millionaires' coffee clatch around the AAFC? And what, from your research, give us a sense of maybe them, sort of maybe separately or individually or or collectively, how how they thought that their approach uh, and the timing and pro football generally was worth the major challenge with the AAFC?
2: Well, collectively, Tim, uh, according to Jim Crowley, who was the first commissioner. Of the AAFC, Jim Crowley was one of the uh, legendary Notre Dame four horsemen, the the backfield of the 1924 Notre Dame team. It is probably uh, no uh, mistake that Crowley was hired by the owners of the All-America Conference teams as their commissioner because Layden the commissioner of the NFL had been one of Crowley's teammates in the backfield of Notre Dame in 1924. So you're trying to match star power for, for star power here. According to Crowley, the cumulative wealth of the original owners of the eight AAFC teams. And I, I find this statement hard to believe in all honesty, and the uh, bank statements, of course, were not available to try to verify this. So it may have been whistling past the graveyard. It may have been false bravado, but Crowley claimed in 1945 that the owners of the AAFC teams were worth a cumulative $200 million. Now, what that would translate to in 2019 dollars, I'm really not sure, but But try to wrap your your head around that $200 million is, according to Crowley, cumulatively cumulatively what these men were worth. Now, that is uh, a staggering amount of money. And then when we get into what happened once the AAFC started playing games, you'll scratch your head even more and wonder... How can that be? It just doesn't seem possible that they had this kind of uh, cumulative personal wealth and fortune, because AAFC teams were uh, were dropping like flies financially after the first season of, of 1946.
1: Well, okay, so that's that's interesting because, uh, and I think this is sort of a theme that's gotten played out uh, in uh, successor leagues, especially in football, uh, where. Like say, say the World Football League, as an example, right, where, you know, it seems <laughs> it's relatively easy uh, to speak to the ego and the uh, intrigue of, of a potential well-moneyed owner uh, to, quote unquote, own a professional football franchise. Uh, it's quite another necessarily, though, to uh, translate that into uh, an operating budget and an ongoing funding of operations besides the original investment. So it almost seems like perhaps that maybe you're alluding to maybe a bit of that, right, where it's, uh, you know, sure, it sounds like a great idea, and, and I'm happy to hobnob and be associated with a number of uh, well-moneyed and well-intentioned, arguably, football fanatics to to get a new league up and running. And, and perhaps there's some some real business there because the football thing is, is still relatively fledgling and maybe underdeveloped. So you said naivete earlier. Did, did you think any, I can't imagine any of these folks uh, would have been naive enough to think that just showing up with a check and and getting the publicity to get things going would be the last thing that they'd have to do relative to actually running a football team, which sounds like more money. Uh, I can't imagine any of them wouldn't have thought that, that that would have been part of their mix to get this thing going.
2: Well, uh, again, using the uh, the term naivete, let's look at the situation here in uh, in Cleveland and – In writing this book, I really had to be very careful not to dwell too much on Cleveland because, of course, this is where I live, this is uh, where I grew up, and I've been a Browns fan all my life. I mentioned in the book that it really, truthfully, could be titled The Cleveland Browns and Seven Other Teams because that's pretty much what the AAFC was. Um, I had to be very conscious of not making it too Cleveland-centric, but so much of the history of the AAFC is the history of of what happened here in in Cleveland. Mickey McBride, the owner of the Browns, made his money as the owner of the Yellow Cab Company, a very well-heeled individual who said at the um, team's banquet after the 1946 season that he approached Arch Ward when he heard about the new football league that was being created, because remember at this time, Cleveland was in the NFL. Cleveland had the Rams in the NFL and McBride went to Ward and said, you gonna have a team in Cleveland. If you are, I'd like to own it. And Ward said, don't oh, okay. We would like to have a team in Cleveland. Let me check your background and uh, get back to you. And according to McBride in like a week, Ward got back to him and said, okay, you check out. If you want the Cleveland franchise, you've got it. McBride said, and I don't think uh, this was tongue-in-cheek. I really don't believe this was said in jest. McBride said, to show you how much I knew about football, I thought I'd write a check for $500 and and I'd be in the league. And he was in for a rude awakening after that. Now, I can't say how that might have translated to the uh, other owners, Of other teams, but uh, apparently some of these people didn't really have a good concept of what running a professional football team would be like and what it would cost. Now, McBride was one of those people who was, as the saying goes, smart enough to know what he didn't know. And he knew he knew nothing about running a football team. So he hired a guy who knew everything about running a football team and let Paul Brown run the team, and the results spoke for themselves. But it would just seem to me, based on what I found in my research, that um, some of these people didn't really realize what they were getting themselves into. It was more complicated and more expensive than they thought, And in other situations, just because somebody has a huge amount of money doesn't mean they're going to be willing to spend it on a venture that doesn't appear to be about to return much of a profit on the investment. The the, the franchise in in your city of Chicago being the perfect example, uh, the, the, the Chicago franchise had four ownerships in four years in the All-America Conference. Each one supposedly loaded, and each one went bankrupt before each individual season was over.
1: Now, that's interesting. All right, so so give us a sense, based on what you were able to determine, how was the recruitment process for these potential or eventual owners, uh, at least in the beginning part of, the, of getting this league up and running? Was Ward basically running that? Was McBride kind of like the guy who kind of stepped in and maybe was sort of his... Uh, shadow seller so to speak i mean because it seems to me that these uh these guys right they're all guys you know come from uh different forms of uh, of wealth generation i mean you had uh, tony morabito who's a lumber guy out of san francisco you mentioned the first owner of chicago i guess his name was john Keishan, who was more of a trucking kind of magnate and the la thing right you know which seems to me like it was a sort of a classic group uh, you had a you had a racetrack owner in there and then um, arguably a, a front man arguably how much money he actually brought to the mix in Don Michi, right a well known guy and, and Louis Meyer from from MGM I mean how was that process sort of going like was it was it an ego push to get you know uh, people in or or I'm just curious as to what the process by which uh, the the money was being uh, solicited how that was sort of going and, and and processed
2: well i found out i mean one thing that was a, a common thread throughout the research that I did was that the AAFC loved to talk about the amount of money that its owners had. And the sports writers who wrote about the league dwelt on this, that the bottom line is the AAFC really has more money than the NFL. The AAFC owners have deeper pockets than the NFL, if the recruitment, well, I shouldn't say recruitment of McBride because they did not recruit him. He went to them. Um, newspapers of the time did not go really into any detail about the vetting process, if there even was a vetting process back in the 1940s. But Arch Ward was a smart individual. As your listeners may uh, know, he was the guy behind the old college football all-star game, which started every college season up until uh, 1976, and also the guy who came up with the idea for the Major League Baseball all-star game. So this was a smart individual who obviously knew that money was going to be needed if the AAFC was going to compete with the NFL, and the guy is... In most cases, that wound up with AAFC ownership were men of considerable means, with a couple of exceptions, which make for some of the most interesting stories that you'll find in the book. I'm talking specifically about the uh, the Miami Seahawks, who became the Baltimore Colts, and were a constant. Uh, source of irritation to say the least to the, uh, the AAFC always being in, in money trouble. So I can't specifically tell you how the process went of recruiting these owners, but there was nothing the commissioners of the AAFC enjoyed doing more than bragging about how much money their owners had. And every time there was a franchise, well, most times, let me qualify that most times that there was a franchise in Financial Trouble, the commissioner, be it uh, Jim Crowley or those that uh, followed him, uh, Jonas Ingram and uh, Scrappy Kessing, all had always saying from the same songbook. Well, if this ownership goes under, we've got another one waiting in the wings, and boy, have they got money. And I had to get a laugh out of that because um, it just didn't uh, come out in the wash. It really didn't. That was... A recurring theme that uh, lacked substance, to say the least.
1: All right. So it's pretty clear that the, uh, the 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 money part is is certainly there. The operational naivete, perhaps, uh, not yet to really to sort of play out until the games actually get going. But let's talk about the geography uh, decisions here, because obviously, looking back in history, um, it seems curious to me that a brand new league, supposedly with well a good money behind it, uh, would choose to go directly in competition with the NFL, in a number of major markets, in addition to maybe some other markets that didn't have pro football. Why do you think that decision was made versus, say, doing more uh, cities that were not enjoying any kind of pro football at all?
2: Tim, I think uh, that is an interesting question, and I've always wondered about that in sports expansion. Why do you go into a city that's uh, already got A team like um, in in 1961, the American League puts a team in Los Angeles, which just got the Dodgers. Why are you doing that? So why did the AAFC decide to put a team in um, New York, which already had one? Well, it's New York. So any professional sports league figures, we've got to have a successful franchise in New York, media capital of the world. So we need uh, need a franchise there. And they actually had two because they had uh, a franchise in Brooklyn. As well. So now you've got three teams in the New York City metropolitan area. Cleveland already has a team, but we have a guy who's from Cleveland and says he'd like to own a team, so fine, we'll put a team in there. Chicago's got to have a team. Uh, Arch Ward is our founder and he works for the Chicago Tribune, and we have to put a team in Chicago. Um, then you wound up with. Two teams in Los Angeles, which had not been the game plan. When the AAFC put a team in Los Angeles, there was no uh, professional football there. Then the Cleveland Rams moved to Los Angeles, and now you've got two teams in um, in that market. So I've always found that uh, curious as well. Why would you go where the product is already there? The AAFC, of course, did go into – a uh, number of markets that didn't have football. At the time, they put a team in Los Angeles. There was no team there. They put a team in San Francisco, which uh, did not have a team. They put a team in Buffalo, which did not have a team. And they um, they put a team in Miami, which did not have a team, and that turned out to be probably the worst decision that the AAFC made in the four-year history of the league, was to grant a franchise to um, to Miami. And we could do a podcast about the Miami Seahawks alone. So I think the reason for New York is pretty obvious. You've got to have a successful franchise there. Plus, they got Yankee Stadium. What happened was that the uh, Brooklyn franchise of the NFL was uh, abandoned, and the owner of that franchise... Dan Topping, who also happened to own, along with Del Webb, the real New York Yankees, baseball New York Yankees, and Yankee Stadium. Now this gives the AAFC, a fledgling league, uh, the number one sports venue in America. They are going to have a team in Yankee Stadium. So that's the obvious reason for, for putting a team there. You've got two franchises. The Dodgers hardly count. The Dodgers are pretty much an afterthought, and I'm sure we'll uh, talk a little bit about them in uh, a few minutes. So your your virgin territory is Buffalo, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Miami. Now, this gives me an opportunity to mention that uh, the name of the league is the All-America Conference often called incorrectly the All-American Conference, in fact, so much so that on the back cover of my book, my publisher calls it the All-American Conference. They didn't send me the back and front covers (laughs) when they sent me the proofs, so I wasn't able to correct them. So it's kind of embarrassing that on the back cover of my book, it's called the All-American Conference. But the idea behind this was it did cover all of America, You had teams in the Northeast, you had teams in the Midwest, you had teams in the Far West, and you had a team in the Deep South. Because at this point, the National Football League is strictly in the Northeast and the Midwest, except for the Redskins, that was as far South as the NFL went. Everybody else was in the Northeast or the Midwest. So Ward felt he had created a truly all-America conference. And that's how the franchises... Um, wound up where they they looked into other potential places like Dallas, like Houston, like uh, New Orleans, like Kansas City, and uh, nothing ever came of those, but they did have franchises in places with no track record of professional football in Buffalo, in Los Angeles, in Miami, and in San Francisco. Yeah, so I
1: mean, this is also uh, I think you know, people have to again remember that ha- how relatively tenuous pro football was at the time. We alluded to it earlier, uh, but but talk about Moxie, right? I mean, uh, not only is we're talking about the wealth supposedly behind this effort, but you know, we're really trying to now push the current uh, ownership of the NFL into the realities of of a geographic you know understanding of the United States, and then there's plenty of places where quote unquote pro football. Uh, doesn't exist. I mean, ambitious is uh, kind of an understatement, I guess, uh, given, I guess, the original sort of uh, vision of truly expanding what uh, football could be across literally the entire country.
2: Yes, I think that's what Ward had in mind. Now, uh, in going into Miami, George Preston Marshall, the owner of the Washington Redskins, who is probably the AAFC's number one antagonist, for the four years that it was in existence, George Preston Marshall just laughed and said, there's no way football is going to succeed in Miami. You guys are really going to regret this decision. And that turned out to be right, and that may have been why football, pro football did not return to Miami for some uh, 20 years after, after that. But they wanted to see how professional football would work, in the deep south because, of course, football, college football, was so popular in the south. But Miami was not the right place. In fact, Atlanta was another of the cities that was in, um, in the running for an AAFC team, ultimately was not chosen as uh, an AAFC city. But football being so popular on the college level in the south, Arch Ward wanted to see if it might work in Miami. That didn't mean football couldn't work in the Deep South, but Miami turned out to be uh, the wrong place to put a professional team in 1946.
1: All right, we're going to take a quick Brief pause, and uh, we want to remind you that our friends at Audible uh, are offering to you, our listeners, an opportunity to get a free audiobook download uh, from their amazing array of over 190,000 titles to choose from. Uh, when you go to audibletrial.com/goodseats, and that's the place to go to get your free audiobook download, courtesy of us and Audible, Uh, and uh, it's something you can cancel at any time and you can uh, keep the book for as long as your device uh, exists. And like I said before, there's just a ton of choices uh, available to you to burn up that free credit, uh, including a bunch in the realm of our forgotten sports little genre here, uh, including uh, in the realm of basketball. If you fancy yourself a fan of the old ABA, for example, uh, two great books on the great Julius Irving that might be uh, worth uh, uh, using your credit for. One, of course, is the uh, uh, the Rise and Rise of Julius Irving. It's called Doc, and it's written by Vincent Malazzi and uh, narrated by David Cremette. You could use your credit for that book, uh, and it's a great sort of uh, interview-style uh, 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 background on the uh, uh, life and times of Dr. J uh, from uh, from all sides. Uh, But if that's not good enough for you, why not try the autobiography? It's called Dr. J, the autobiography, of course, it's written by Dr. J in in concert with uh, Carl Greenfeld, and it's narrated by Dr. J himself, Julius Irving. Uh, and uh, you could use your credit for that book, as well as, like I said, thousands and thousands of other books—not just only in basketball and basketball history, but in a whole host of genres and topics. By all means, give them a try. Why don't you? It's risk-free, for God's sakes. Audibletrial.com/slash/goodseats. Yes, Audibletrial.com/slash/goodseats. That's the link, uh, and that's where you're going to get your free audiobook download. Again, you can cancel at any time, and once you do download that book for free. And uh, after you cancel it, if you, if you choose to do that, it's yours to keep. So you can enjoy uh, in perpetuity for as long as your device lives. Uh, they download a book free and gratis, courtesy of uh, yours truly here at Good Seats Still Available and our friends at Audible's. Thank you, Audible. We appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate you uh, joining our conversation once again. aside from Miami which which we can t- touch upon later or perhaps even do a separate episode on if you're if you're willing uh and uh and and I haven't I don't bore you to tears uh with this one um, <laughs> can you give us a sense of sort of how the this first season sort of unfolded because it, it does seem like uh it, it was quite successful on a number of different fronts both on the field and off the field but I think also the NFL did too and probably some of that is because of you know, a return to domestic uh, economic growth, the war being over, uh, people returning home, and, and, and arguably a bit more uh, pursuit of normalcy uh, after you know years of uh, horrifying uh, war effort.
2: Well, for sure, the um, the sports boom of the late '40s, the the NFL and the, the AAFC benefited from that. The war is now over. The troops are coming home. They want to have a, a good time. They want to go to professional sports games, whether it's baseball or football. They have the money to do it. So 46, 1946, the first year of the All-America Conference, turned out to be the best of the four years of the AAFC. The attendance figures were strong just about everywhere, except for Miami and for Brooklyn, Uh, Here in Cleveland, the Browns were setting all kinds of football attendance records. Uh, The Yankees did well. The Bills did uh, the Buffalo Bisons, I should say. They were the Buffalo Bisons in 1946, and uh, they surprised a lot of people by the way they supported their team. The uh, Rockets in Chicago had the one decent season that they would enjoy in four years, so uh, right away, the AAFC is showing at least at the box office that it has some staying power. I mean, the first AAFC game at Cleveland Stadium, 60,000 plus in attendance, and that was unheard of. The NFL didn't draw numbers like that. In, in most cases, it couldn't. In those days, most football teams used baseball stadiums, assuming that they were in a city that had a Major League Baseball team. In fact, the only um, NFL city by 1946 that was not renting a baseball stadium was Green Bay because, of course, Green Bay didn't have a Major League Baseball team. Everybody else was renting baseball stadiums. They didn't have 60 and 70,000 seating capacity with the exception of Yankee Stadium. So the NFL couldn't draw the kind of numbers that uh, were being drawn in Cleveland in huge municipal stadium with its 80,000 seats. Of course, the biggest venue was there in Chicago where the Rockets played in Soldier Field and it's 100,000 seats and they filled half of those seats for their first game. They didn't approach that again. But the AAFC had to show the NFL that it was not going anywhere anytime soon with the kind of attendance that it drew in 1946, because people wanted to have fun, they had the money to spend, and an additional football league gave, uh, oh, I I should, I I can't forget the uh, the LA Dons, and the Rams too, for that matter, playing in the LA Coliseum with its 80-some thousand seats so suddenly you had big venues uh the the coliseum didn't draw the kind of crowds that the browns did in cleveland and the rockets didn't draw the kind of crowds the browns did in cleveland but the seating capacity was there now it was up to the two leagues to put on the kind of show that the fans would be willing to uh to pay in large numbers to see. So, 46 was the AAFC's best year, and then it uh, just deteriorated slowly each year from there.
1: How about the quality of play? It seems that uh, the, uh, the AAFC got off to a fairly decent uh, uh, product, shall we say, start. But uh, it also seems that there was quite a divide between sort of the haves, if you will, on field uh, and have-nots in terms of their performances.
2: Well, Tim, there there was in, in both leagues uh, a big disparity between the top teams and the bottom teams, but yes, in the AAFC, that was probably one of the reasons that led to their demise. You had the Browns, who stood head and shoulders above everybody else, the 49ers, who were almost as good, the Yankees, who were almost as good. The Dons in Los Angeles, who were um, pretty much mediocrity, uh, a 500-type team. And then you had everybody else, especially in the Eastern Division, where the first year of the AAFC, the Yankees win the Eastern Division title with a record of 10-3-1. The other three teams in the Eastern Division combined to win eight games. So the disparity in the Eastern Division, there was no race. The Yankees dominated from the first week of the season. Folks in in Brooklyn, in Miami, um, in Buffalo, they really don't have any reason to come out to the games because their teams won three games or less. In the Western Division, the Browns and the 49ers fought it out for two-thirds of the season, and then the, the Browns established their dominance, go on to win the division easily. And the uh, 49ers and the Dons fight it out for second place. The Rockets bring up the rear, but the Rockets had three tie games in 1946. So you can look at it this way: they were three points away from having a winning season of eight and six, or you can look at it the other way: they were three points away from having a record of five and nine instead of uh, five, six, and three. So competitively, the first season of the uh, AAFC. In the West, there was some competition. In the East, there was none. And that situation, it became so serious that by, by 1948, the commissioner of the AAFC felt it was necessary to step in and rearrange, shall we say, um, some of the uh, the playing talent.
1: And, and how did that sort of unfold as the season sort of ended? I mean, I, if you're the ownership of the AFC and you're Arch Ward, do You claim success. It seems like there's plenty of room to to do such, but it also seems to me that there are some, as as becomes obvious in in later later years, uh, some real significant hurdles to overcome.
2: Well, after the first year, the uh, the league meeting which took place the uh, week of the, the the championship game, which was in Cleveland, Browns beat the Yankees to become the first AAFC champion. Uh, The big problem was, what are we going to do with Miami? In Miami, the owner had run out of money by the middle of November. The players had not been paid from the middle of November until the end of the season. But they kept showing up for practice and for games anyway. So Miami problem had to be dealt with. It was dealt with by liquidating the franchise and moving it to, uh, to Baltimore. Otherwise... Things were in in relatively good shape. There was a change in ownership in Chicago. The first AAFC commissioner, Jim Crowley, resigned the commissionership and bought the Chicago franchise. So everybody is anticipating great things for the Rockets. In 1947, Crowley has an outstanding record as a college coach. And referencing back to what we were talking about earlier, John Keeshan, the trucking magnate, sold out, and Crowley and his new ownership supposedly had lots of money to spend on playing talent. And remember how important this would be because you now have two leagues fighting over the same talent. Players have a choice. Do I sign with the NFL? Do I sign with the AAFC? Who's going to give me the best deal? And, of course, they played off both leagues against each other. Until they got, uh, got the top dollar. So, Chicago's going to have new ownership. We're going to put a team in Baltimore. The uh, Miami Follies are over and done with, and things looked uh, pretty good heading into the second year. The NFL is, is uh, coming off a pretty decent season as well, but their operating costs are now getting considerably higher because their draft picks have the choice of signing with another team that might give them a better deal so their operating expenses are going up and they're as much as they want to ignore the aafc and pretend that it isn't there they're having to find ways to increase the revenue to be able to pay the players especially the uh, the top-notch talent most of which went to the aafc in 1946 and 47 they got a lot the majority of the star college players. That changed in 1948, but the first two years, the star players were basically going to the the AAFC. So after one year, it looked pretty good. It looked like Miami has been eliminated. We're going to be stable in Baltimore. Chicago has been, uh, well, I wouldn't say stabilized because the Keishan ownership was not an unstable ownership. He just decided for reasons that were never really elaborated upon to uh, sell out and get out of football. But everybody thought Crowley and his group, they have money. Crowley has a college coaching background uh, that would, would portend success in the AAFC. So next year, the West is going to be really tough. You'll have the best teams in the West, Cleveland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago. They're going to spend all season battling it out. Looked like the 47th season was really going to be a strong one for the AAFC.
1: Well, let's talk about one of those uh, things going into, into 47. The, the situation is interesting in Chicago and in New York, and we alluded to it, but maybe now we can uh, spend a couple of seconds on it, which is you really actually have three professional football teams in both of these cities. And uh, it seems that uh, both the Brooklyn Dodgers and uh, the Chicago Rockets are kind of on their way to being sort of the, the odd men out. Uh, amongst those three, maybe you can explain that situation because I mean we alluded to it earlier. I mean I, the fact that that the AFC is competing in the backyards uh, of of some of the major franchises in the NFL alone is is a pretty bold kind of uh, approach and statement. But you know, three in in a in a in a sport that is just getting its feet back against after the war and and economically.
2: Yes, nobody was ready to support three professional football teams. In 1947, yes, and in New York, you've got the Yankees, you've got the Giants, and you've got the Dodgers. Um, the Dodgers were pretty much an afterthought. The, the Dodgers had uh, had a, an NFL team since 1931 that had been pretty much ignored in the borough, and then when that team was liquidated and moved almost uh, completely over to the AAFC and became the New York Yankees, uh, they were a much... Stronger team because of some demands made by uh, Dan Topping of his fellow owners. Uh, Topping was a a smart businessman. He knew he had a bargaining chip in Yankee Stadium. The AAFC wanted to have Yankee Stadium, the top sports venue, most famous sports venue in the country. Okay, I'll bring my team over here to the AAFC. But he demanded, first of all, demanded that his uh, fellow owners not charge him A franchise fee. They grumbled, but okay, they agreed. I mean, here's a guy that uh, his family owns, Anaconda Copper Company. He's wealthy. He's loaded. And he's asking that I don't have to pay a franchise fee because you really need me. You really need my ballpark. And it's important that I have a competitive team. So he demanded that each team in the AAFC give him two players off of their roster. And not the dregs either. Each team was only allowed to keep three players on their protected list. Topping could take anybody else that he wanted, which is why the Yankees turned out to be as strong as they were, because we've got to have a strong competitive team in New York. But no, New York couldn't support three professional football teams, and that was proven in 47 and 48 and 49 Chicago couldn't support three teams either Chicago had the Bears of course the monsters of the Midway they had the Cardinals who were the uh, worst team in the NFL up until the uh, late 1940s now there is a theory and I wasn't able to prove this or disprove this but there was a theory that George Halas wanted to make sure the Chicago Rockets never got a footing in Chicago, so he funneled some good players to the Cardinals to make sure that they were not not only competitive, they wound up winning the championship in uh, 1947. They had never been a competitive team until the middle 40s, but Hallis wanted to make sure that the fans came to see the Bears and the Cardinals and not the Rockets. So maybe there was some chicanery going on, uh, nothing was ever proven, but even at that, Chicago could not support three NFL teams. the The sport was just not that popular at the time. And Los Angeles, as big as it is, big as it was, struggled to uh, support two teams. I mean, they go from no professional football in 1945 to having two teams in 1946. Kind of like
1: and that sounds. That sounds familiar. <laughs> doesn't that sound
2: familiar? Yeah, that that happened uh, just a. Uh, A couple of years ago, haven't had a team in 20 years, now we got the Rams and we got the Chargers, and they struggled to support. What I found really, really interesting was why, for some reason, the fans tended to turn out for exhibition games in Los Angeles as opposed to regular season games. They had a handful of exhibition games, both the the Dons and the Rams, that drew over 80,000. In the regular season, they were putting 30 and 40,000 people in the, in the Coliseum. But Los Angeles struggled to support two teams. New York couldn't support three, and Chicago couldn't support three. Uh, another of probably the mistakes that the AAFC made was they insisted they had to have a team in Chicago. Even though the Rockets were pathetic on the field and pathetic at the box office, We've got to have a team in Chicago. Keeping a team there probably was one of the AAFC's larger mistakes.
1: So let's talk about a little bit of that intrigue, because uh, as you mentioned, because the Cardinals really had never been uh, uh, really a thing of any sort, and and the implication, or the uh, perhaps maybe now the actual assessment based on your research, that there was uh, some funneling of talent, shall we say, by the folks in the NFL and, and Mr. Hallis in particular. Uh, to kind of sort of ward off, no pun, the uh, the Rockets and the AFC challenge. What of the NFL? Right, because it's clear that that uh, both leagues uh, had some uh, were doing you know fairly well. I mean, there was certainly some major crowds. I mean, even the AFC right, where was seventy thousand at Yankee Stadium for a a, a big time game against the Browns. I, I guess it was sort of a, a tale of two halves, where you had a, a 28-0 lead. You know, for the Yankees and then the the Browns come back in stunning fashion to tie the game. I mean, uh, eighty two thousand for a game in the in the Coliseum with the Dons. But I just it seems to me that the NFL is absolutely I don't know if they're walking back uh, their initial disdain of this uh, this league. But it's certain that some level of alarm bells are, are ringing in the NFL in that there are some encroachments. Uh, there is some success uh, and perhaps that uh, maybe uh, we have to take this uh, threat a little bit more seriously uh, perhaps versus what we were thinking two years earlier.
2: Well that's exactly exactly uh, what happened I mean if you deny there's an elephant in the room that doesn't mean it isn't there and the NFL had to come to grips with the fact that the AAFC is here and no other challenger to the NFL had ever lasted more than two years. In 1926 the first AFL Lasted one year. In the mid 19, mid and late 1930s, the second AFL died after two years. In 1940 and 41, the third AFL gave up after two years. Then there were the two challengers I mentioned earlier in the podcast that existed only on paper for like six months. So by 1948, that was a historic season for the AAFC simply because it became the first challenger to the NFL to make it to a third season. No other league had managed more than two years without throwing in the towel. So the AAFC has been around for three years. It's not going to go away, which is what the NFL was hoping would happen. So, yes, they have to acknowledge the existence. And as both leagues are now beginning to uh, bleed red ink because of uh, operating expenses, player salaries, this is when the first peace feelers are made by, by both leagues. There was, in, um, in 1948, an effort by the owner of the Philadelphia Eagles, Alex Thompson, to get some of the owners from both sides together and try to hammer out some sort of agreement so that both sides are not losing all of this money. What happened there was that uh, Dan Topping, The Yankees made what he thought was a completely innocuous remark about the Mara family, the owner of the Giants, that the Mara family in 1948 is going to lose $200,000 operating the Giants this year, and wouldn't it be great if we could all stop losing money and start making a profit on our football teams? Well, that remark was made at a uh, football dinner covered by a number of writers, and as soon as the Mara family read it, they went absolutely ballistic. They were going to be part of this peace conference that Thompson had organized. They immediately withdrew. So did all of the other owners in the NFL, and they said, uh, if this wasn't war before, it's war now. So the first of the peace feelers uh, went up in smoke, being uh, the reason being that uh, that uh, topping had made what he thought was just an off-the-cuff truthful remark, but it marked the point where both sides realized we have to put a stop to this thing before both of us wind up going out of business. 1948 was the year the NFL acknowledged they're not going to go away. So what are we going to do with them? And for the last year and a half of the AAFC's existence, that became the question: What are they going to do with the AAFC?
1: Yeah. So the AAFC, though, so they also, I guess, have their own kind of decision to make as well, right? I mean, so there's there is that sort of entreaty, there is sort of that feeler, you know. I, I guess the NFL folks could sort of perceive that as being you know maybe there's a sign of weakness there that they're kind of you know uh, reaching out to us so early in their in their proceedings but it's it's unmistakable that both sides right recognizing that this competition is raising salaries which i guess is good if you're a player of the, of that era right because you've at least got you have choices right a theme that we hear over and over and over again with challenger leagues and the competition right uh, arguably has a uh, uh, goodness for not only players and 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 their their potential uh, ability to command higher salaries but also uh, conceivably for fans and and the quality of play right versus uh sort of a status quo but it's pretty clear that both sides recognize that this competition while healthy and and arguably you know a good thing to for fans ultimately is not going to uh end well
2: well uh, tim what what goes on after like uh, the middle of 1948, after this first peace conference goes up in in smoke, what you will find if you read the book is the phrase a sensible solution. There must be a sensible solution to this pro football war. So, what is it? And after the 1948 season, um, the Browns finished 15-0, won the AAFC championship, and the next day, instead of them getting all the headlines, the big headlines are that a contingent of AAFC owners was on their way to Philadelphia to talk to some NFL owners, the first face-to-face meeting in the three-year pro football war. And maybe the problem was everybody thought, okay, it's going to be solved in one day. The AAFC owners will go to Philadelphia They'll hammer out an agreement with the NFL owners, and we'll have peace. In one day, the differences between the two leagues were not going to be ironed out. They met for one day, and they issued a joint statement that said, we couldn't fix the problem. So hopefully there will be further meetings. But the phrase that keeps coming up is a sensible solution. The problem is each side had a very different idea of what a sensible solution was. The AAFC always envisioned a setup like Major League Baseball, two separate but equal leagues working together, and at the end of the season, each league's champion would meet in a one-game winner-take-all playoff. That's what the AAFC wanted, or at least that is what they continued to insist that they wanted. That was their vision. That was what they wanted from day one to create a Major League Baseball-type situation. The NFL's idea of a sensible solution was, we want the Cleveland Browns and the San Francisco 49ers we will absorb those two teams, and the rest of the AAFC will disband. That was their idea of a sensible solution. So you can see 180-degree difference here between the two sides why the initial talks didn't get anywhere. You can, you can see why uh, there, was no, there was no common ground here, none at all. The, the AAFC wanted uh, a common draft, which, of course, happened with the AFL and the NFL after after their merger. First thing that they did before they started, before the actual merger, was at least the common draft. So you weren't cutting each other's throats with player salaries. The AAFC said, let's have a common draft so we're not killing ourselves paying our players. And the NFL continue to insist, no way, no common draft, never going to happen, so you can see why the negotiations, at least at that first meeting after the 1948 season, didn't go anywhere. There was no common ground between the two parties.
1: Well, who has who actually has the leverage in that conversation? Because you can make the argument the NFL has more of the leverage or 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 maybe some people would say the AFC does because of uh, of some of their you know successes and, and frankly, drawing power against some uh, direct competition in the NFL. Right. So it almost feels like there's a, a group grope, I guess, for. Who's got the leverage really for that conversation? It seems like the NFL, you know, kind of stiff armed that because arguably they kind of could because they're the legacy league. I don't know.
2: Well, I think that's that's the case. I think it is, and I I think that is borne out in what the eventual resolution of the pro football war turned out to be. And again, much of my research was done in the uh, the Cleveland newspapers, and even in the papers. Here, the attitude toward most uh, from most of the writers toward the AAFC was: this league is not as good as the NFL. Maybe the owners do have more money than the NFL owners, but the product is not as good. It is not as prestigious as the NFL. I think the the leverage really did belong with the NFL, regardless of how much money these AAFC owners may have had, I think the NFL held the upper hand. They did have the prestige. They did have the the team name recognition, which the AAFC didn't have. And ultimately, with the solution that was achieved at the end of the, the 1949 season, I think that proved the NFL had the upper hand. They knew it. And it was just a waiting game to see how how much longer the AAFC owners would be willing to continue to lose money, even though they did outdraw the NFL. The first three years of the AAFC's existence, 46, 47, and 48, they did slightly, not substantially, but they did slightly outdraw at the box office the NFL Nonetheless, uh, the NFL had the prestige, and they knew it, and I think they knew that they could wait it out, and ultimately they did, and the results of the merger that put an end to the pro football war pretty much showed who did have the upper hand and who knew how to use it. The NFL got Ninety-nine point nine percent of what they wanted in the ultimate uh, surrender documents, if you want to phrase it that way.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So that the NFL, you know, kind of basically say, okay, if there's going to be a war of attrition, a war of attrition, uh, you know, we've we've been through stronger challenges before, literally within the decade. And look, we've explored this a little bit in, in previous conversations about the NFL and and the the All America Conference in this in this realm. You know, a lot of the NFL owners, right? Were very tight knit, very you know, you know they started on a, a a card table, you know, back in the early twenties, and and what they didn't have in in financial depth, they certainly had in, shall we say, shared camaraderie and um, collegiality to fight off uh, all kinds of different uh, challenges. This being sort of the latest among them. Maybe we can circle around forty nine because it seems to me that the even the beginning of the season, uh, it almost feels like AFC uh, management and ownership. Uh, despite some challenges and some realignments, which we can talk about, uh, seems to almost kind of want to go for broke, almost literally at the beginning of the season with uh, this uh, college All-Star game that Arch Ward has been behind. Maybe you can sort of set the table with that, because I think what happens with that All-Star game uh, almost sets the tone for perhaps what's going to happen at the end of the season.
2: Well, the AAFC had offered to uh, substitute itself for the NFL in the All-Star game because the NFL had almost pulled out of it The previous year, due to um, some uh, contractual problems, Uh, specifically uh, Harry Gilmer, the star quarterback of the University of Alabama, who was a draft choice of the Redskins, had signed a contract to play in the game and then said, I'm not going to. And the reason for that being uh, the Redskins did not want him to at the risk of injury, and uh, the commissioner of the AAFC came in and said, because George Preston Marshall, the owner of the Redskins, said, I think we should pull out of this game. This game doesn't put any money in my pocket. I don't think we should waste our time with it. I don't want my players playing it and possibly getting hurt. And the commissioner of the AAFC, of course, here's a chance maybe to tweak the NFL. So if they pull out, we'd be glad to play in this game, especially since the guy who started the college all-star game is the same guy who started the AAFC. So here we are. We're willing to play in this game. Didn't come to that. The NFL didn't cancel its contract, and the, the game went on as scheduled. By 1949, the AFC only has seven teams. The Brooklyn Dodgers have ceased operations. They have merged with the New York Yankees because in 48, the Dodgers lost $319,000. And Branch Rickey, yes, the Branch Rickey who operated the baseball Dodgers also operated the football Dodgers. That was too much for uh, Rickey. To take so the Dodgers just ceased to exist and merged with the Yankees. The AAFC is down to seven teams for 1949, which means um, they only have a 12-game season as opposed to a 14-game season. They decide that the playoff they have one separate one single league rather than two divisions. And with seven teams in the league, the top four will make the playoffs. And the number one seed will play the number four seed. The number two seed will play the number three seed. And uh, then the the highest remaining seed will host the championship game. It turned out to be a pretty good competitive season, except for Baltimore. The six other teams were competitive, and the Browns came out on top again. And uh, the, the crowds were... Diminishing everywhere, even in Cleveland where the speculation was, you know, we just know the Browns are going to win every week. We know the Browns are going to the NFL, so let's get it done. That was pretty much the attitude here anyway. We know the Browns are going to the NFL. The competition is better there. The AAFC is on its last legs, so let's just get it over with, okay? The championship game between the Browns and 49ers drew a crowd of 22,000 in an 80,000 seat stadium and even the sports editor of the Cleveland Press said the city should be embarrassed. This is this is pathetic. But at that point everybody knew the end was near and if not in 1950 then by 1951 the Browns would be in the the NFL. So the 1949 season from a competitive standpoint pretty fair for the AAFC, but the crowds were not there, even in Cleveland. San Francisco held up its end, but everybody knew with only seven teams left, this was going to be uh, the, the last call for the AAFC, and it turned out to be.
1: So so let's talk about sort of how the sort of end of times here sort of occurs, how this does get wound down, and, and, and maybe some of the conjecture as to how uh, don't call it a merger. Right. Or some kind of combination, um, maybe a little bit of, uh, of interesting points around sort of how how all of this sort of comes together uh, in the end, both uh, during the course of forty nine and then maybe after the season of forty nine, because I, I'm really curious as to like how much fans andor or I mean, you, you're kind of alluding to the fact that pretty much people kind of knew something was going to occur. But, you know, how much did people on the fans and the players and how much really did people know that and what were the uh, the competing theories of how to put these pieces together unfold?
2: Well, ultimately, uh, the negotiations that resulted in the quote unquote merger, because it was technically a merger, but certainly not a merger in the style of the AFL NFL merger where the NFL absorbed all of the AFL's eight teams at the time and eventually became ten with the Miami and Cincinnati franchises added the meeting was so secretive that one of the two people representing the AAFC was a guy by the name of Dan Sherby who was an attorney and was Mickey McBride's partner in ownership of the Browns when the announcement came that the war is over we have reached a peace agreement and here it is McBride didn't know anything about it. He didn't know that Sherby had been meeting with the NFL. Only the people involved in the meeting were aware of it. They kept it from the media. They kept it from everybody. And, and Tim, the bottom line was it was prompted by the fact that owners on both sides were just losing such huge amounts of money there was no way two leagues could continue. And AAFC, whether they had more money or not, um, their owners, I think they just saw the handwriting on the wall, and the National League, even then, was too big, too much of a force, too much of a behemoth. They were not going to give in. They were never going to agree to this separate but equal two leagues deal that the AAFC wanted. The owners were tired of uh, of losing money, and they decided it was a a draconian piece, but we accept the, uh, the agreement that they reached was pretty much the same agreement that they could have had at the end of the 1948 season. The sticking point at the end of 1948 was the Browns and 49ers were more than willing to join the NFL and the other AAFC teams We're pretty much willing to uh, disband and say, hey, it's been fun, but we're going to do other things now. But the Baltimore Colts would not go away. They insisted if there is a merger, we're going to be involved in it. The Redskins wanted nothing to do with the Colts being in the NFL. The AAFC owner said, we've been through too much in three years. We're not throwing anybody under the bus. If the Colts aren't included, we're going to go on for another year. They lost the Dodgers, they kept the Colts, they went on for another year, and at that point, it just had to cease and desist. And so the NFL, they made the the one concession. The one concession that they made was, okay, we'll take the Colts. We get the Browns, we get the 49ers, we'll take the Colts, and the rest of you, go away. And that was the ultimate sensible Solution: The other AAFC franchises disbanded. The Browns and the 49ers and the Colts moved into the NFL. The Colts were punching bags for one year and then disbanded themselves. And uh, what we have left of the AAFC is the fact that uh, the Browns, despite a hiatus in the 1990s, Browns and the uh, 49ers are still around and still in business.
1: Um, can we talk about the Bills for a second? Because it seems like that uh, there was uh, a valiant attempt on the uh, from the fan base uh, of the uh, Buffalo Bills to also be included in this, quote-unquote, uh, merger.
2: Yes, there was. And if anybody really got the short end of the stick, it was the Bills fans. I mean, they were asking the question, if Baltimore is in, why aren't we in? Because Baltimore, every year of their AAFC existence, 47, 48, 49, went hat in hand to the public and said, we're broke. We need you to come across with the money to finance our team next year. We are broke. The Bills, who became the Bills in 1947 after being the Bisons in 46, they supported their team well. They had $175,000 to put up to operate their franchise. They went to the NFL meeting where the merger was uh, finally uh, voted upon and approved made their presentation, and Burt Bell, the commissioner of the NFL, said, uh, well, that that sounds pretty good, and we really don't have anything per se against Buffalo. And uh, the Buffalo people made the argument that, hey, an uneven number of teams is not going to work. You'll have 13 teams next year. That means every Sunday somebody's got to have a bye. With 14 teams, everybody can play. But ultimately, uh, Dan Reeves, the owner of the Rams, voted against Buffalo joining the NFL, saying, again, I have nothing against Buffalo, but I don't think this 13-team league is going to work, and I don't think a 14-team league is going to work. So I just don't think we want to take on any more franchises. At this time, the NFL Constitution required that any decision on any issue, no matter how small it may be, required a unanimous vote. So when Dan Reeves voted no, Buffalo was out, and as we know, they had to wait 10 years till the AFL came along to uh, get themselves another Major League uh, football team. But Buffalo probably deserved to be in the NFL much more than Baltimore did.
1: Well, it seems that uh, admitting Baltimore over Buffalo wound up seemingly in the early days uh, kind of winding up being kind of a mistake pretty quickly. (laughs) Sure did. So uh, a couple of other sort of things to uh, so maybe to sort of wrap up this, and then I want to get to your sort of thematic here, which we kind of alluded to in the beginning about sort of the forgottenness of this league. The name of this new league actually was going to change, wasn't it? Wasn't it t- discussed as being changing the name of the NFL uh, because of this uh, supposed uh, merger?
2: Yes, they changed it to the National American Football League, and I believe that only lasted for one year, maybe maybe two at most and then it went back to uh, the National Football League.
1: But it's also interesting too that the legacy of that sort of National and American those two appellations uh, uh actually wound up becoming uh, foundational into how the NFL uh structured itself uh to uh, to what we even know today is these two sub conferences of National and American names.
2: Yes, yes, exactly. Um uh, because they did have the national conference and the American Conference for uh, again i 'm not sure how many years one or or two years before it went back to being the uh, Eastern Division and the Western Division until um, sixty six when they broke into the four um, four divisions and gave them all separate names and so yes, there was uh, some uh, Relationship between what happened in the early fifties with the merger with the AAFC, and then what things would eventually become in the sixties, and with the merger of the uh, NFL and AFL in the seventies to what we have now—yes, the American Conference and the National Conference.
1: All right, so let's uh, uh, let's then talk about sort of. Well, actually, there's one one other thing I want to sort of get to. There was this there was this sort of sidebar. It was called the World Series of Pro Football. At least people had sort of thrown that out there. Uh, and I guess it, my sense is that that sort of came from the uh, the brain trust of the then existent uh, All America Football Conference as a persistent and consistent challenge or an offer at least.
2: Well, yeah, the, there were all kinds of offers from the AAFC to challenge the NFL every year. They we want our champion to play your champion. Now, this World Series of football came about uh, from some uh, gentlemen in Los Angeles who wanted to host the World Series of Football, as I remember it, at the L.A. Coliseum, but they wanted to do it as sort of a a warm-up act to the Rose Bowl game, which again shows you that college football was much more popular than professional football in those days. But I believe that was their idea. Let's have the AFC AFC champion play the NFL champion, and then a few days after that we'll have the real attraction – The Rose Bowl game, the NFL never wanted any part of that, and none of those ideas, whoever they may have come from, and they came from any number of uh, different places and sources, the NFL wanted no part of that. Their champion was not going to play the AAFC champion. They had everything to lose, nothing to gain, and that game was never going to happen, and it never did.
1: Very interesting. So, OK, so let, let's sort of come back to this sort of major theme that we kind of initiated the conversation around. And and again, it goes back to the title of the book, uh, The Proverbial League That Didn't Exist. we've talked about this with other leagues and, and have absorptions and or mergers and all those kinds of things and, and the uh, sometimes convenient remembrances or distances from history that uh, that make up those leagues and and uh, and the things that come from it. And the NFL is obviously no exception. But so, you know, I, the title of your book is not, uh, I'm sure, a trivial one. What of the NFL's remembrances and or incorporation of the AAFC in its history, both records as well as otherwise? Because it is undeniable, right, that the Cleveland Browns, whichever version in history you want to kind of, I mean, the, the the name at least, right, lives on. Uh, but its history obviously is is now branched into a couple of different environments in the NFL, but it's still very much part of Cleveland history. The 49ers and the Colts, obviously, uh, very much part of the NFL's uh, ongoing legacy. And even some of these teams like the Buffalo Bills, et cetera, can ar- arguably draw some of their initial uh, beginnings from, from the old AFC. So what of the state of this four-year Challenger League and its Incorporation into the rich tableau of pro football, the NFL in particular, uh, why isn't it more uh, embraced uh, as part of its uh, of the league's legacy?
2: Well, I I wish I had a, a really good solid answer for that because I think in your asking the, of the question, you've touched on the the legacy that the AAFC has left behind. It really should not be. Swept under the rug or forgotten or, or left in the, the dumpster of history. The Browns and the 49ers are left behind. The, uh, the Buffalo Bills uh, kind of can trace their antecedents back to the AAFC. The Baltimore Colts were sort of born there, then died and then were uh, rejuvenated in the, uh, the early 50s in the NFL. Um, I wish I had an answer as to why the a a f c is not given the respect that it deserves um i i think i think in in closing I'll just mention uh, an incident that has happened with me and uh with this with this book which might uh give you an idea of still the the lack of respect that the a a f c gets uh as you probably know the the Pro Football Hall of Fame is not operated by the NFL but uh it, it apparently it seems to have kind of the same attitude toward the AAFC that the the NFL does in that um when this book was published uh I and also my uh, my publicist uh tried to get in touch with the, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, because 2021 will be the 75th anniversary of the AAFC. And we've been trying to get in touch with the Hall of Fame to see if uh, we can put together some kind of program to commemorate this. And I'm not trying to criticize uh, at all anybody with the, uh, the Hall of Fame, but uh, the book has been out for like seven months now, and we're still waiting for our phone calls and emails to be answered. So uh, even the Pro Football Hall of Fame seems to not want to be bothered with the AAFC. And I wish I could give you a a good, solid answer as to why that is. But the, 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 that's one reason why I wrote the book to hopefully uh, get some respect and just some uh, publicity for a league that uh, was around for four years and and did leave a mark.
1: Yeah, and I wasn't there at the time, but I mean, it, it 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 seems like if anybody was a sports fan at that time, especially at pro football, right? To, to, it was absolutely on the radar, right? It was it was significant crowds and and you had teams and and com- competition and and I my sense is, and this is only born from 2 years of uh wacky investigations into lots of uh, similar situations around pro sports in this country. It, it maybe is a reluctance, I guess, to even admit that there was moments or two of weakness or or uh, or competition or just to even maybe validate the fact that that there have been challenges which i think in the nfl's case is probably even more than any other league in this country and other sport in this country probably the hardest to defend given the a- the afl experience which was in many respects the ultimate in justification that a challenger league can be not only equal but merged into via their equality
2: yes i i i would i would agree with that and i really hope that uh, with with this book uh, maybe i can get something started so that there will be some recognition of the aafc as uh, a legitimate uh, challenger who played some interesting football in the in the late 1940s and deserves not to be forgotten
1: All right, there it is. Uh, we uh, thank our friend Gary for uh, our little chat about the uh, AAFC and the Browns and all the various uh, teams that sort of came out of that and the heritage that, for whatever reason, the NFL doesn't sort of fully and warmly embrace. But uh, maybe by buying a few more copies of Gary's book, uh, that'll help the cause and the process and raise a little bit more awareness of of this issue and this wrong uh, that probably needs to be righted. That book, of course, is called The League That Didn't Exist, A History of the All-America Football Conference. and uh, 1946 to 1949, those were the years it is published by McFarland. Uh, you will find uh, a uh, link to that book, of course, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. By all means, search up this episode with Gary Webster and you will find a link to the book conveniently. And uh, by doing so, you'll buy that book on uh, on Amazon. You'll get it probably as quick as as any book can be gotten uh, in this day and age. And you'll be giving us a few uh, a few pennies or nickels of love by doing so. And uh, we appreciate you doing that tremendously. Uh, you could tell by uh, by the voice of Mister Webster, uh, yes, indeed, Gary is a radio guy, and you can listen to him in the uh, the metropolitan uh, Cleveland area, Geneva, Ohio, in particular, on. W.K.K.Y. country 104.7 where Gary is the uh, the morning guy uh, Monday through Saturdays uh, each and every morning. again it's uh, country 104.7 wkky uh, in beautiful downtown Geneva, Ohio you could also listen to them and him online of course uh, at wkky.com and uh, let's see what else we've got uh, all kinds of fun stuff for you at uh, at goodseatstillavailable.com make sure you check out all of the great episodes that we've uh, done in the past. Uh, you want to sign up for our newsletter. You can do that there. You want to follow our social media feeds. Uh, you can do that. We're at Good Seats Still on Twitter. You'll find us on uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You'll find a, a Facebook page devoted to us. You'll find all those links and stuff there on the website. If you forget all that, if you want to send us some email, you can uh, click on the link there, or you can just send it to us directly if you like. And that's hello at Good Seats Still and uh, geez, I don't know what else. How about uh, saying thanks once again to our friend Jerry Payne uh, and his pals at Podfly Productions who uh, help us uh, produce every week all of the uh, pieces that are needed to uh, put some kind of intelligent show together. And uh, obviously, if you want to find out more about uh, how to podcast and be part of the podcast revolution, well, if you want their, their help, by all means, give them uh, a checkout at podfly.net. And, uh, geez, I don't know what else to tell you, but uh, we again, thank you for listening. God knows what we'll have for you next week, but uh, we do encourage you to add us to your feeds. Tell your friends about us. Give us some ratings and reviews, why don't you, on uh, Apple uh, Podcasts or wherever you listen. Pandora now, you know, you name the place. I mean, uh, tune in. We're on uh, Spotify. We're everywhere. So uh, give us a listen. Tell your friends. And again, thank you so much for listening. And we'll uh, talk to you next week. Until then, the ticket window is now closed.